from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Forty years ago, punk rock invaded the mainstream. It energized the kids, drove parents crazy, and inspired a do-it-yourself work ethic. People feel empowered to make records, to perform, to write. You didn't have to be fantastically skilled or, or have a lot of expertise. Today we kick off our two-part series on 1977, the year punk broke. And later, we'll review the new record from Fleet Foxes. And big stars Jody Stevens tells us about the song that got him hooked on Sonics. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. That is Anarchy in the UK by punk icons the Sex Pistols. Jim, as we've discussed on the show before, the history of rock music's filled with landmark years where everything seems to change. New movements emerge, and a whole bunch of great records get released. Listeners may remember that we've examined the years 1967 and 1991 on past episodes of the show. Today, we'll turn our attention to another game-changing year in music history, 1977. We're going to spend two episodes looking at the impact of punk rock in the U.S. and the U.K. And this week we're going to focus in on the U.K. because that year saw a deluge of incredible releases from native bands like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, Wire, Buzzcocks, and many others in the exploding London punk scene. Absolutely, Greg. And to discuss that scene, we go now to Wales, where we're talking to John Savage, author of the definitive book on this era from the Brit perspective, England's Dreaming. John, it is a pleasure to have you on Sound Opinions. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be here. John, your book does an excellent job of taking us through uh, the sociological, cultural, and historic factors that led up to punk exploding in 77. But can you set the scene for us? Why did this music explode at this place and time? I think that it was obvious that something like punk was going to happen. If you were a music fan, which of course I was and still am, you knew that something was going to happen because for several reasons, really. First off, you had these precursors. You had people like the Flaming Groovies. You had people like, obviously, Dr. Feelgood in London, who are fantastically important. And at the end of 75, we in the UK started getting wind of the CBGBs scene. There were articles about CBGBs in the British music press. And so it was obvious that something was going to happen. And musically, it needed to happen for all the obvious reasons. And obviously, everybody cites the dreadfulness of progressive rock. But it actually wasn't that. It was the fact that mainstream pop music was absolutely hateful. Hmm. When I think of 1976, I remember my life being ruined by three different records. And I remember (laughs) hearing these records nonstop, and I totally hated them. And it wasn't a casual hate. It was an absolute burning hate. And it was Save Your Kisses for Me by the Brotherhood of Man, which is a Eurovision Song Contest winner. It was Fernando by ABBA. And by the way, (laughs) let nobody tell you that ABBA were hip. 
in back in the day, Abel were the enemy. <laughs> and the final one was Kiki D and Elton John, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Yeah. Whenever I think why punk had to happen, all I have to do is remember those three records. But take it from me, the pop music of the day was absolutely terrible. All you have to do is look at any BBC Top of the Pops programme from 1976, and it's full of novelty records, it's full of not even good disco records, it's full of terrible disco records, and inane DJs, and the whole level is sort of at a 10-year-old. And there's no guts and there's no life and there's nothing there that seems relevant to kind of teenage problems and also the problems of the UK at the time, which were probably fairly similar to that of the US, only probably much more advanced. I know in New York, and New York was in a particularly bad state. So there was a similarity between New York and London. Let's just take those two cities. And that was to do with the recession. It was to do with, certainly in the UK, with rising unemployment, although nothing like the level of youth unemployment we have now, by the way. Mm -hmm. And you also had deserted inner cities. You'd had slum clearance, but you hadn't had the money to rebuild. So there were quite large areas of London, which are now prime real estate, but then were just, you know, derelict buildings, destroyed, you know, corrugated iron. So the whole thing felt extremely dead it felt as though everything was dead and the term punk itself is a term that would have been looked upon with aspersion five years earlier why was it embraced and where did it come from i think it's really funny that punk rock now has acquired this kind of machismo punk is a passive homosexual okay a punk in 30s and 40s is like a gunsel is like the lowest of the low mm-hmm and it's like what, you know, Jesson Airplane said in Volunteers, which is whatever it is you say we are, we are. You know, it's taking on what people say about you, the worst thing that people can say about you, and throwing it back in their face. It's a handy term, really. And it was known as punk pretty much in the UK from spring 76. And people tried to change it and make it into something else. But punk, punk it started and punk it always was. One of the points in your book, John, I think, was that New York punk was ahead of London in terms of just getting on the map, getting records out, getting noticed. Sum that up for us a little bit, because I know Malcolm McLaren, the future manager of the Sex Pistols, was fascinated, was galvanized in seeing a band like the New York Dolls and put some of that back into the London music scene. Summarize that story for us. Yes, I've never been a one that gets into, you know, London punk is better than New York punk. There have been all these arguments over the years and quite rancorous. And I just think it's really stupid. What I really think about it is that punk was an idea that happened to different people in various Western cities in the US and in Europe at around the same time. Certainly the impulse was there in Paris, it was there in Cleveland, it was there in London, and it was definitely there in New York. And in fact, obviously, the most organized expression of punk rock in its earliest days in the 70s was in New York with the CBGB scene, with groups like Paddy Smith Group and Television and my favorites, the Ramones.
he'd obviously had a huge influence on British punk, also because a Michael McLaren, who was the manager of the Sex Pistols and the run- owner of the Sex Boutique in Kings Road, where the Sex Pistols originated, Sex Sex Pistols, they were the group of the shop, had been to New York in 74-75. He'd met the New York Dolls in 73-74 and loved them and went over to work with them. And while he was working with them in their disastrous last days, he encountered the CBGB scene and saw uh, Richard Hell and the Ramones and people like that. And he thought, right, well, you know, I'll take some of this over. And he took, in fact, Seal Sylvain of the New York Dolls' guitar and gave it to Steve Jones, um, back with the Sex Pistols, back in London. So it was the idea of taking elements of the New York scene but not lock, stock and barrel. And that's always been the thing. One of the reasons I think the New Yorkers get so uptight about the English scene is that actually the Brits went further with it than the New York groups could. And Mm. I was always very disappointed that the Ramones never made it uh, as big as they should have done. I mean, that first Ramones album had a huge impact on British punk rock, apart from the Sex Pistols, who were up and running before that album came out in April 76. I know because I went out and bought it the day it came out in the UK on import, and it was April 76. And the Sex Pistols, you know, slowed up and slowed down. They had tension and release in their songs, whereas all the British punk rock groups had that na 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 you know, thing going on, the Clash in particular and the Dan. I got a feeling inside of me it's kind of strange, like a story see. I don't know why, I don't know why. I guess these things have got to be. I've got a new rose, I've got a good. Yes, I knew that I always would. I can't stop to mess around. But i got a brand new rose in and it was all as a result of seeing the Ramones. So the Ramones basically sped up uh, British music. We're talking to John Savage, author of England's Dreaming, getting a little bit of the background on what led up to the uh, to the great explosion, the plethora of music that came out in 77. You, you were saying that the English took punk further. Now, Sex Pistols will have to deal with, but one of the fascinating <laughs> oh, things... That sounds obvious. No, 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 we love them. <laughs> we, no, I mean, you've got to love the Sex Pistols. They're, they're as iconic as the Ramones. But when, when I think of the enduring influence of 77 and English punk today, I'm much more likely to cite the Buzzcocks, Wire, X-Ray Specs. I mean, groups are forming today and really inspired by those sounds that were made in 77 and trying to take them somewhere new. Uh, well, that's because all the groups you cited were and are very good. I mean, the whole point is about punk, uh, you know, the same with anything else. There was a whole load of rubbish. And I remember being at the Roxy and seeing all the groups that came through. And every new punk group would play the Roxy. And some of them, man, they were so ropey. Eater. What was the point of that? They were so bad, and no amount of kind of retrospective, you know, revisionism is going to make me think that they were good, because they weren't. From April 77, I was working as a journalist at Sounds magazine, uh, which is one of the weekly music papers, along with The Enemy and The Melody Maker. You know, I was kind of on the punk detail, so it was my job to go out and find new groups. And I was very busy promoting X-Ray Specs and Buzzcocks and Wire and Subway Sect and Susie and the Banshees and American groups like uh, Perubu. And I was writing about the Ramones. And I was starting to write by the end of the year about the early San Franciscan and Los Angeles punk rock scene. 
and both of which I think produce some terrific records, which are still not very well heard, particularly in your country. I think it's a great shame. Mm. I think there were loads of, you know, and I, I was definitely not a little Englander about this. I thought punk was always thought punk was an international movement. And that was the whole point of it. And I really got irritated when Brits during 1977 start to say, well, this is ours and, you know, get very chauvinistic about it. Boring. And it's the same as people from New York getting chauvinistic about it. It's music. It's an idea. It's a really good idea. And everybody can participate, you know. No doubt about it. John, what about this amazing year of 77? The prelude to all of this, you know, were bands like the Ramones, et cetera, giving some inspiration to the scene, the New York Dolls. Then there was the vision. McLaren gets a lot of stick to this day from John Lydon and the other remaining Sex Pistols about what he did or didn't do for the band, mostly what he didn't do. But McLaren did have a vision. What was that vision that he brought to the Sex Pistols? Because at one point, you know, some people over here were saying, well, this is sort of like the Monkees. It's sort of a manufactured band. Obviously, it was much greater than that. But at the start, McLaren was pulling some strings, wasn't he? Yes. I started the book with talking about McLaren because basically without McLaren, I don't think the whole thing would have happened. And just parenthetically, I think the interesting thing about a group that is manufactured or put together, and a lot of groups are manufactured or put together, is whether, number one, whether they produce good music, and number two, whether it actually connects with what people are feeling and thinking. If it connects with what people are thinking and feeling, then it's not a hype anymore. It's something that's real. And the Sex Pistols always played from the early days. In the interviews of the book, somebody said to me it was like they played with a mirror in front of them. They always got incredibly intense reactions, usually hostile to start with, but then there'd always be a few fans who'd come and see them, a few people who'd come and see them, and all those people, I'm thinking about Buzzcocks, I'm thinking about The Damned, I'm thinking about The Clash, would all go away and form groups, so that was incredible. And Malcolm, he was like an impresario. It was a bit like a British version of Warhol's factory. It was somebody who was pulling the strings, somebody who was in control. McLaren as Warhol had this kind of arena. He had the shops, which are like Warhol's factory. All these kids came and hung around in the shop. They're exposed to weird ideas. They went out and enacted these weird ideas. And so you start to get a scene. And once you get a scene, it's not just a bunch of lunatics. It's a scene. It's, it's something that's happening. The high priest of punk rock is Malcolm McLaren, owner of a punk rock fashion boutique and manager of the Sex Pistols, England's most controversial and, therefore, best-known punk rock group. The teenage kids who follow punk rock in this country, in their style and form of dress is a total reaction against the packaging of youth clothing in this country. They are really concerned now with taking any form of clothing and making a statement with it by tearing it up, writing a slogan across it that suggests something of their own particular discontent. McLaren made it happen. He had the clothes, they were very sharply defined. He put the band together. And I think his original vision was to have something like the Bay City Rollers. And, and of course, it's typical of McLaren that he actually messed up. <laughs> and a lot of McLaren's great strokes were, in fact, him making mistakes. And what it created was something quite bizarre, which is this kind of 
small faces slash faces type backing band with, you know, a sort of Captain Beefheart acolyte over the top, which is John Lydon. right back with more of our talk about 1977 with author John Savage. Then, big stars Jody Stevens will tell us about the song that got him hooked on Sonics. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the track Pretty Vacant from the Sex Pistols' 1977 debut, Never Mind the Bollocks. We're joined by UK music writer John Savage. He's talking to us about 1977, the year punk broke. John was on the scene in London when Bollocks came out. I mean, just look at that title. Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. That was UK punk introducing itself to the mainstream. Here we are. The Sex Pistols were scandalizing straight-laced Britons using language like bollocks and releasing these angry, sarcastic singles like God Save the Queen. I mean, it doesn't get much more iconic than that music and that pink and yellow album cover. Bollocks is definitely a classic album, but John, listening to it today, I'm really struck by how conventional some of those sounds are. Those are classic heavy metal guitars and drums. Do you think it sounds as startlingly new and fresh today as it did in 77? Well, I mean, the Sex Pistols, by the time they were recording the the album actually came out, it was almost like a tombstone. I remember reviewing it for sounds, and I actually criticised it. I mean, obviously, in one sense, it was unarguable. You know, it was the Sex Pistols, and it has 12 tracks, and most of them are pretty good. But on the other hand, if you listen to the record as a whole, it's actually quite airless. And already, by Autumn 77, we were all getting used to kind of different ideas of sound. And as you say, it does sound a bit like a metal album, but it also sounds very compressed and there's no room in it to breathe. Mm. The problem for the Sex Pistols was that, you know, it was very dangerous for them in the outside world. They couldn't play concerts and they did get attacked, certainly after the Jubilee. And so they spent a lot of time in, in the studio and, and the album is actually, I would say, overcooked. God save the queen, the fascist Oh, 
But that single, uh, Mave 77, God Save the Queen, attacks exactly what you're talking about here, John, that this whole idea of England living in its past, uh, still living off the fumes of 1945. They were celebrating the Queen's Jubilee at that point, and this, this single attacks that, that whole notion. Apparently, they attempted to ban it. Some radio stations did anyway. It still sold, what, a couple hundred thousand copies in a week? The impact must have been unbelievable. I mean, you were, you were right in the middle of it. What was, what was it like being in, in London at the time that single was released in May of 77? Well, God Save the Queen was actually banned right across the media. It wasn't some radio stations, it was all radio stations. It was banned by commercial radio stations. It was banned by the BBC, except one play on John Peel's show. The ad was banned on television. Uh, You couldn't promote it in newspapers. The only place that gave the Sex Pistols publicity was the music press. And the only place that you could buy the record without fear or favour were independent record stores. So actually what it was, so a record like that to get to number two, showed the strength of an alternative youth media which existed then, which adults just didn't really know about. So you, the music press, the fanzines, and the alternative record stores, shops like Rough Trade, Beggar's Banquet, shops all around the country, there was always one record store, where you could buy the record. And that to me was very ex- exciting. Sorry? You've been banned by the Greater <laughs> London Council, who yeah. own all the halls. Yeah, well they... There's a blacklist no, down there. No, you can't lose that way. Our name's the top of the it's blacklist. Better. As soon as a, any promoter puts you on, they use the <laughs> sex pistols, they take away the licence for a day. What's their specific objection, do you think? Punk rock, isn't it? They just hate it? Yeah. They can control the stones, they can't control us. <clears throat> I don't know whether there's been an equivalent in the US, but if you have something that's basically trivial as a pop group being banned, then you start to ask questions. You know, are we living in a free society? Well, if we are living in a free society, why aren't the Sex Pistols allowed to say what they're saying? Which isn't that bad. They're not saying kill the Queen or anything. Mm. They're just saying this whole thing is a, is a shock. This whole thing is a fake. Mm-hmm. We're talking with John Savage, the author of England's Dreaming Anarchy, Sex Pistols, Punk Rock and Beyond, about the year 1977 in England. John, this whole idea of the no that is a dominant theme of the book, and and I think the biggest no was God Save the Queen in a lot of ways. Why was that such an exciting idea? It seemed to galvanize the youth culture that year in a, in a way that I don't think any moment in history since has. It's a very, very strange thing. What I think about punk rock now is that it was the product of scarcity, and I think what happened with punk is that it started as a kind of musical protest, And then all these other discontents got funneled into it, which was, do you know what? The country's pretty bad. Mm. Do you know what? The television's pretty bad. Do you know what? The royalty's pretty bad. Do you know what? Everything's bad. Let's write a song about it. You know, no fun, no future. And saying no at the right time, obviously it can get to be an incredibly bad habit, but saying no at the right time can be incredibly powerful. was incredibly powerful. The Sex Pistols had an amazing year in 77, both good and bad. What about the other bands in the movement, John? The Clash came out with White Riot in April of 77. They were obviously the biggest, or considered in retrospect, the biggest rivals of the Sex Pistols. 
What was the reality in 77? I think the Sex Pistols have lasted better. You won't hear the Sex Pistols in adverts because the Sex Pistols really do have a dark heart. They just don't care. Hmm. And the Clash kind of cared, which made them very approachable. They were more conventionally, if you like, socially aware and socially concerned. And in that respect, they were almost like a 60s band. In all the introductions that I did, I said that you prefer to be identified not so much as a rock and roll group, but as a news-giving group. Why? Well, I don't know. Maybe we just... Uh, too many songs have been written about love already, you know? Subjects covered, you know? <laughs> what do you want to say about the news? The news is news, right? So it's not boring. I mean, it's what's happening now, you know? We like to plug into what's okay, happening now. Okay, what but what do you want to say about what's happening now? We're just saying life is boring. So we're trying to make it so interesting. I saw them do some great shows in 77 at uh, the Rainbow in London and, and at the Apollo in Manchester. two of the best rock and roll shows I've ever seen in my life. And on the one in Manchester, I was in the press pit and the kids were literally tearing the theatre apart and throwing the seats, you know, ripping the seats out and throwing them at the band. So I'd spent the whole concert dodging these seats as, as, as they <laughs> came flying over. And I remember looking up at Mick Jones, the guitarist, and, and, and he just went, what? <laughs> mm. what's this all about what have we done and so in a way the bands were almost the excuse for the kids to go absolutely mental I was much more interested in Buzzcocks. I thought Buzzcocks were fabulous, and they still sound great. I listened to their first three albums recently. The first one actually wasn't released until 1978, another music in a different kitchen, but, you know, you had heard all the songs live, and they released two singles. They had released an EP, Spiral Scratch, which is, sort of, you know, the start of indie rock, basically. And they released Orgasm Addict, which is one of my favourite punk songs ever. Um, because it's funny. Well, you tried it just for once, found it all right for kicks. But now you find out that it's a habit that sticks and you're an orgasmatic. You're an Go back to what you just said, Spiral Scratch, the start of indie rock. Explain that. Well, it's, uh, Spiral Scratch is literally the start of indie rock because it was released on an independent label and it showed that you could make records cheaply, produce them yourselves, release them yourselves and sell 12,000 copies, which was a lot of copies at the time. What inspired them to do that? Well, I think in general, punk rock was a self-starter movement. It was full of people who were self-starters. And this is a major point of it, actually. Nobody's going to give you any money. Hardly anybody had any money. So, you know, money wasn't an issue. People weren't career-oriented. If you had something to say, you had to do it yourself. You had to, whether it was doing a fanzine or whether it was producing a record. And this was an incredibly powerful idea. In many ways, I think it's punk rock's finest legacy is that people feel empowered to do what they want to do, to, to, to make records, to perform, to write, that you could do that and you didn't have to be fantastically skilled or, or have a lot of expertise. And so a lot of it was just about raw communication, which of course is great.
there's a sophistication about the Buzzcocks in 77 with Spiral Scratch and then the first album that follows. If the Clash and the Sex Pistols were all about the explosion of energy, Buzzcocks are kind of taking a breath and incorporating all sorts of other things, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, I always thought the Buzzcocks were quite psychedelic. Of course, they're from Manchester. You know, Pete Shelley had been into Krautrock and he'd been into Eno, so it's going to sound a bit different. There are these are friends of mine, the government sufferings. They don't take a line, they give me just an adrenaline. Well, talk about the psychedelic connection, you know. Uh, yeah. The Damned had roots in it. Wire was signed by the man who had signed the Pink Floyd, you know, a decade earlier. There wasn't this entire attempt to tear down the history of rock, which is how the mainstream media sort of portrayed it, especially in the U.S. You know, Colin Newman has always said to me that Pink Flag was their attempt to cock a snoot at the entire history of rock and roll. Well, the movement often gets reduced to that T-shirt that Lydon used to wear, the I Hate Pink Floyd homemade T-shirt that he wore. And the assumption being that these bands wanted to completely start over and, and forget about the past. But obviously this was not true. I mean, obviously, the year zero stuff you know, when you actually look at it, it, does not hold up. But it was a very powerful idea. And I think it originates from Malcolm McLaren. You know, whatever everybody else is doing, do something different. And we're going to create something out of nothing because everything's awful, everything's crap. All the people involved in punk rock have probably been born between, sort of, say, 52 and 58. So they'd have all heard quite a lot of 60s music and late 60s, early 70s music. You get a lot of that in punk. You know, you listen to Submission, you know, the demo version by Sex Pistols. It sounds quite psychedelic. Mm -hmm. You listen to Cheat by The Clash, and it's got phasing on it. Mm. That's psychedelic. There's a lot of crossover between what was happening in the States and what was happening in the UK. But what, in your mind, are the primary differences, if any, between the two movements? Oh, massive. Well, I mean, the first difference is you listen to a song like See No Evil by television. And Tom Bolen goes, I understand all destructive urges. Sex Pistols, Anarchy in the UK, from same year, same time, Get Pissed, Destroy. So the New York bands are a bit older and they're writing about stuff. The British bands are younger and they're in that stuff. Yeah. The New York bands are standing apart from it a little bit. And they've got this kind of, is this a put on or not thing, which the Ramones had, you know, second verse, same as the first. You know, you knew that they weren't just dumb. There was something else going on there. Whereas the British group seemed to plug directly into the teenage experience without any barriers. But the main difference, I think, is that the British punk rock groups, number one, they'd get signed by a major. They'd get on national television if they had a hit, except for Sex Pistols, they'd get on top of the pops. If you were on top of the pops, you'd be seen by a third of the country. 
There's nothing like that in the States, which is obviously vast, regional. And back in the day, radio was very conservative then. I remember going to LA in 1978 and being appalled because <laughs> the radio was just non-stop. Beatles, Crosby, Stills and Nash. And I thought, oh... Mm -hmm. Things are really different here. There is no chance for any of these punk rock groups. None at all. Yeah, that's very true. What is the legacy of 77? Well, I think obviously the legacy is in some great records. Loads of great records from that particular year. But I think the idea is that pop music doesn't have to be the same old stuff. It doesn't have to be part of what oppresses you. It can actually liberate you. And that if you have something to say, you can say it. You don't have to wait for somebody to come and help you. You can do it yourself and you should do it yourself. Well, we've been talking to John Savage, author of England's Dreaming about punk in the UK, 1977. John, it's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. Uh, thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. So, Jim, we've just heard John Savage talk about all the great records that came out in 1977 by people like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, The Buzzcocks. There were tons more, of course. And now what we would like to do is play some of the music that you and I particularly were fond of from that year. I mean, there's so much to choose from. So many great singles, so many great albums that came out in 77. The first flowering of punk rock in the UK. I'm going to go to one of the more obscure bands from that movement, but I I think their music really holds up. And I think as an emblem of what was going on at the time, nobody really did it better than the adverts. Now, some people may say, who the heck are the adverts? But for three years, I think they epitomized what UK punk was all about. This is a band that formed in 1976, a co-ed band, two leaders in the band, Tim Smith, a.k.a. TV Smith, and Gay Black, a.k.a. Gay Advert. Now, some people think of Gay Advert as the first UK female punk rock star. They added two other players to the band, the greatest names in the world, Jim. I mean, in terms of just naming themselves, fantastic job. Howard Pickup and Laurie Dryer, okay? <laughs> You've got this quartet of people who traveled to London, formed this punk band, And they became one of the first bands to play the Roxy in London, just as it was becoming the primary punk club. Their first single was released in April 77. It was called, appropriately enough, One Chord Wonders. It summed up this whole idea that you don't have to be a rock star. You don't have to be particularly proficient at your instrument. You don't have to be this musical god to play punk rock. Anyone can do it the license that you can get out of bed today, form a band. It was more about your ideas rather than your technical prowess. And this song sort of embodied that idea. And what's more, it adds the caveat, even if you don't like it, we don't care. We're going to keep going ahead. We're just going to keep plowing ahead. Great melody, those buzzing guitars in this one great package. The adverts with one chord wonders on Sound Opinions.
That is the adverts with one chord wonders from 1977. Greg, I'm surprised by your pick, although it makes sense. It does capture that anybody can do it. No talent or training required (laughs) spirit of 77. I'm going the completely opposite direction with a song from Wire's debut album, Pink Flag. It's a record that came out in December of 77, just made it. The group had formed in 1976 after the explosion of the Sex Pistols. They were different in many ways from everybody else on the scene. They were a little bit older. They were a lot more educated. They were art students. Colin Newman on vocals, although he didn't write the lyrics. That was done by the bassist, Graham Lewis, a wonderful guitarist, although his role in the band really was spanner in the works, as he told me. Bruce Gilbert, he was the least guitarist, but he made a lot of noise. Great drummer, great name like the adverts, Robert Godebed. These four individuals from the beginning were looking as much at where punk could go in the years that would follow 77 as they were embodying the spirit of 77. They'd make three albums before disbanding temporarily in 1980 that would prove hugely influential on what would become alternative rock covered by and paid homage to by R.E.M., The Sex Pistols, The Minutemen, Sonic Youth, Husker Du, Ministry, Big Black, The Feelies, Chris Connolly, anybody who made inventive music in the 90s and today has listened to Wire, even though they didn't sell a lot of copies of this record. It is a perfectly conceived 21-song Sweet. They were taking Chuck Berry and the Velvet Underground and the Modern Lovers and everything that they had loved that was not cheesy art rock and turning it into punk. Although they also had that art rock side. You're not going to hear a lot of that expansive sound in the song I'm going to play, but it is the spirit of 77. There are no heroes. This song is called X Lion Tamer. It's about imagining Tonto and the Long Ranger without silver bullets and Robin's quit the scene. The Capes Crusader's a loser. You just stay there glued to your TV set. There are no superheroes going to rescue us out of the plight we're in. All we have is the music we're about to make. I would say, you know, you and I are asked a million times, what's the one album that has meant more to you in your life? I mean, how do you say the Velvet Underground or or, or, or this or that? You know, it changes from minute to minute. But I will say, I've listened to this album and live with it more than any record in my life. Your life will be better if you haven't heard Pink Flag and start listening to it now. Here's Wire on Sound Opinions. Good to you. 
Ex-Lion Tamer from Wire on Sound Opinions. Jim DeRogatis' pick as the classic track from the UK punk scene of 77. What are your thoughts on UK punk in 1977? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. And when we return from a short break, we'll review the new album by Fleet Foxes, their first in six years. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. All across the town, all across the night, everybody's driving with forehead light. Black or white, you turn it on your face and new religion. Everybody's sitting around watching television. God has burned with boredom now. God has burned all night. God has burned with boredom now. God has burned all night. I'm up and down our west side. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track from the new Fleet Foxes album that's called Crack Up. The track is called Fool's Errand. Fleet Foxes, band out of Seattle, uh, veterans of that Seattle music scene when they got together in 2008 to make their debut album, uh, a band that uh, coalesced around the singing and songwriting of Robin Pecknold. The band's MySpace page during that era, remember MySpace outlined <laughs> the uh, parameters of what the band was trying to do. We decided to put emphasis on simple three and four part block harmony. The songs would be simple as well. Songs about our friends and family, history, nature, and the things around us in the Pacific Northwest. Out of that, a movement uh, was born. There was bands like Midlake, Blitz and Trapper, Bon Iver. Uh, later on, we had Mumford and Sons and Lumineers. Uh, a lot of guys in beards. Suspenders, <laughs> playing acoustic instruments again. Uh, Fleet Foxes did it brilliantly, more brilliantly than any of them, I think, on that first record. In 2011, far more ambitious follow-up, Helplessness Blues, uh, selling hundreds of thousands of records, selling out theaters, playing festivals, a band at the top of its game, and then they go away for six years. Uh, Pecknold decided to go to college, Columbia in New York City, uh, and now he's finally back with the third Fleet Foxes album. It's called Crack Up. Here's a track from it. It's called If You Need To, Keep Time On Me on Sound Opinions. How could it all fall in one day? Were we too sure of the sun? If you need to Keep time on me If you need to 
Foxes with If You Need To, Keep Time On Me from album number three, first effort in six years, Crack Up. Uh, Greg, I believe that there is a fine line between lulling and somnambulant and between entrancing, as in hypnotizing, and anesthetizing. This album falls on the wrong side of that line uh, every which way you cut it. People have compared Fleet Foxes to the indie hipster beard rock CSNY. There is way too much CSN and not nearly enough Y as in Neil Young. I think they have been influenced in their absence by their former drummer, Josh Tillman, who is, of course, Father John Misty, um, a name itself, never mind the music, makes my skin crawl. The Crack Up references uh, a series of stories by F. Scott Fitzgerald on, uh, on his way out when he wasn't very good. There is a lot of just mid-tempo snooziness. Boy, this album is bugging me, bugging me, bugging me. I like Fleet Foxes. I applaud uh, Pecknold going off uh, and getting his higher degree at Columbia University. Good for him. I don't know why he felt compelled to return to Fleet Foxes because I think he has nothing new to say here. Uh, I know you're a big fan, Greg, and I'm sorry, but on the Sound Opinions uh, rating scale of buy it, try it, trash it, this is a trash it record for me. Well, I am a big fan, Jim, but I, I too, am disappointed in this record. Um, I heard uh, some of Pecknold's versions of these songs uh, when he was doing an acoustic tour, and I loved them in that kind of setting, more stripped down. Some of the emotional intensity that I so loved about this band is has gotten lost amid those serpentine arrangements that they're putting together. <laughs> I remember seeing them on their first tour after the first album came out, and it was at a festival, and those harmonies just stripped down were some of the most beautiful sounds I'd ever heard. I'm impressed with the ambition, but that doesn't make me love it. I can't embrace it from, a, from an emotional standpoint. To me, it's the first disappointing uh, Fleet Foxes record. I wouldn't give it a trash it. I know that people are going to connect with some of the beauty of this music. I can't. That doesn't mean other people won't. I'd say give it a try it. Up next, Greg, is another installment of Hooked on Sonics, where musicians share the songs that made them fall in love with music. Jody Stevens is our guest this week, Jim, uh, from the pivotal Memphis rock group Big Star. 
that was the great band that was formed alongside vocalist and songwriter Alex Chilton in the 70s. Big stars way more famous now than they were back then. Bands like The Replacements and R.E.M. have been championing them. Uh, they're hugely influential. Jody Stevens continues to play music to this day. He was He's in a band called Those Pretty Wrongs. He's a great drummer, Greg, and he now works also at the famous Arden Studios down in Memphis. As a kid, though, it was music from a completely different part of the world that got him hooked on Sonics, and it all came full circle, as you'll hear. The song that hooked me on the music was I Want to Hold Your Hand. It was just undeniable. It was such a declaration of what every 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old ever wanted, but were afraid to ask. So the, uh, the first time I heard I, I Want to Hold Your Hand was at my neighbor's house. Uh, Billy McMahon played it for us. He'd bought the album. And uh, my brother Jimmy and I went over to have a listen because we'd you know, obviously heard about them. And we uh, pooled our money and went out and bought the record and, and just were hooked and stayed hooked until they broke up. And when I touch you, I feel happy inside. It's such a feeling that my love I can hide, I can hide. Just, you know, Ringo was such an inspiration. And, and uh, so I actually started out in the seventh grade junior high band playing snare because it was at least my foot in the door with playing drums and I could get some, you know, sort of fundamentals of it anyway, at least on a single snare. I wasn't great at that. I, uh, I just I, I didn't have the attention span to learn how to read music, that is, sight read anything and play at the same time. So I'd, I'd watch everybody else play through the, the bit of music and listen and just memorize it and just play it back just from memory and which kind of serves any musician well, I think. You know, I never thought I would technically be a great drummer, so I figured I'd better develop some character. And Ringo Starr played with an amazing amount of character. His contributions to those songs via energy or just kind of the licks he would play, the way he would feel things, he played things with like a shuffle, I like help, and I'm a loser. I'm a loser. My parents wound up getting me a kit, a little set of Ludwigs. You know, my brother and I put a band together. There were so many kids, it was the baby boomer generation, you could feel just about anything. And we had, there were enough kids in the neighborhood to play kind of touch football, and we had a little baseball diamond in our backyard. Not that we had a big backyard, but we were little big kids. Didn't take much. Tom Eubanks was one of them. Wendell Wheat was one of them. And they were both guitar players. My brother was a bass player. I was a drummer. So we had enough in the neighborhood for a band. And that's how I kind of got started playing drums. And then Stax comes along and just floored us as much as uh, the British Invasion stuff. For me, it's all about what engages and what connects and how anybody shares anything and it kind of touches you. 
So, yeah, that's what got me into music. And then you look at those guys, and they're all, you know, witty, kind of cool-looking guys, kind of a new fresh haircut and a new approach to things. and Such an energy about them. Certainly, there's this urgency and, and, and energy and whatever that just kind of reaches out and grabs you. I mean, what else is there to grab with music other than your soul? And it can take on any color, from bright colors to dark ones. But, yeah, I don't know. Any music I like, to me, is kind of soul music, really. That was drummer Jody Stevens of Big Star and his new band, Those Pretty Wrongs, telling us about the song that got him hooked on Sonics. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, a continuation of our 1977 The Year Punk Broke series when we look at American punk rock. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, Ayana Contreras, and our intern, Isabella Martin. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hello, Jim and Greg. This is Greg in Durham, North Carolina. Thank you so much for playing The Regrets in your Best Albums of 2017 So Far show. Uh, I have been trying and failing to get my 10-year-old daughter away from the top 40 nonsense that she enjoys listening to. Hey, now, what's your name? And when I heard the regrets, I thought this would be the perfect kind of wedge strategy to get her interested in punk rock. And sure enough, when I played it for her in the car yesterday, I looked in the rearview mirror, and after the second chorus, I could see her mouthing along with the song. It made me so happy because now I have um, a wedge in order to get her into the Riot Girl movement and so many other fantastic bands. So thank you very much for that. You have helped me conquer something I've been trying to do for years. Jim and Greg, this is Peter calling from El Cerrito, California, and uh, what a great episode. Uh, really enjoyed listening to the New Zealand uh, episode, and in particular, I, I wanted to make a mention of something that um, your guest didn't mention, which was Chris Knox's duo with Alec Bathgate uh, called The Tall Dwarfs. They made some of the most significant music to come out of Dunedin um, that was similar but also completely unique and wonderful uh, and really stood alone in terms of the other pop music that was coming out throughout the 80s and into the 90s. And they definitely deserve a mention amidst the greatest of those bands. So uh, thanks for shining the spotlight on that music that I just think really stands the test of time. It's so good. Let's go away to somewhere new.
This is Andrew from Chicago. I'm addressing your show about New Zealand music. There is a band called No Tag. Uh, they kind of came about in the early 80s during the punk and boy explosion in the UK. They had a little bit more sophisticated sound, twangy almost. Their only LP called Oi, 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 the title track alone, it's just really good. My name is uh, Tim Kearns. Uh, my favorite Kiwi act is Jen Wigmore. Just love her. Thank you. Bye bye. I am a future of a past, a lonely drop in forgotten glass. Hello, same game, Hello, fate, ill past. Do I pretend to play your ways that I always stay inside the lane? Shallow, same In a teacup that are drowning me This bed full of nails and our bones Is a taste of all the wrongs A broken wish that promised me to feel good Feels good Feels good to me No more messages to share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.